0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together.
1: You look silly when you do those things. But uh, but I do have something I want to begin with this morning that is related to what we're going to be talking about as we continue our series. I want to ask you this question to think about. what is your What is, a, what is your favorite neighborhood that you have ever lived in? So, like, thinking about neighborhoods that you grew up in, Maybe your favorite neighborhood is the neighborhood you live in now, but what has been your favorite neighborhood that you have ever lived in in your life? I had to tell you mine was in El Paso, Texas of all places. Um, not necessarily, <laughs> yours too? Okay, great, well you might not like what I have to say about El Paso, but. <laughs> I lived there when I was about 10 years old. We grew up here, but we moved over there for my dad's job. We lasted about three years before we moved back, but those three years were really eventful years. I was about 10 years old at the time, and it felt like, even though I only lived for three years, it felt like I lived there for like 10 years. And I don't know if it was the age that I was or just like the activity that was going on in that neighborhood, but there was a bunch of other neighbor kids who were my age, and we got into all kinds of activities and all kinds of trouble uh, during those three years. I mean, we did things like, well, just we had a creek that actually ran behind our houses, and when I say creek, uh, it's an El Paso Creek, so that means really it's just kind of like runoff water. Uh, but it, it did somehow house like fish. Like there were actually fish in there, carp and catfish, if those count as fish, and then crawdads. And so we would make like makeshift fishing poles, go back there with some used uh, fishing, fishing wire, and we'd go back, fishing line, and we'd go back there and we'd, and we'd fish every once in a while. And we did things like play football in the middle of the street, tackle football, tackling each other. Um, we did things like, uh, you know, going from, going from house to house, kind of messing with neighbors and those kinds of things. Getting in all kinds of trouble like kids diff- typically did. It was also the place I got into my fr- first fist fight ever. And the kid I got into a fist fight with, it was a complicated friendship. He was a friend of mine, then obviously he wasn't a friend of mine for a little bit. And then we were kind of friends again. Uh, but 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 this friend actually also blew up the garage of a house on our street, like literally blew it up. It was a house that was being built, and he wanted to try to blow up the entire house, and so he made this little makeshift bomb, and he blew up the garage instead of blowing up the entire house. I guess the bomb wasn't big enough, but, um, and so he had a little bit of a mean streak in him, a little violent streak in him. But all these things, like it was, there were the, in three years, all these crazy things happened uh, in, in the wild part of, El Paso, West El Paso, which is not the wild, yeah, it's not the wild part of El Paso. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the part with all, if you're not familiar with with El Paso, it's a place with like, you know, all the, uh, all the, basically, it's the suburban area of of El Paso. We still got, we still found our trouble, still got into our trouble. But I, you know, and, and that was in the early 90s, and that was when kids were still allowed to go play in the street without adult supervision and those kinds of things. Probably part of the reason, though, that kids aren't allowed to do that anymore is what happened on Willow Glen over there in West El Paso in the early 90s. But the question is, so what makes a good neighborhood, though? Is it activity? Is it, you know, a well-planned neighborhood? Is it safety? Is it a nice layout? What is it that makes a good neighborhood? I'm guessing that for many of you, when I asked you what your favorite neighborhood was, it had something to do with the neighbors that you lived with more than anything. Probably for most of us, what makes a neighborhood good is the neighbors that we live with. Just like for me, those days were adventuresome because I hung out with a bunch of the neighbor kids and we got into all kinds of trouble. At the same time, a neighborhood is, is, as many times, only as good as the neighbors that live in it. And this week, I mention that because we're going to continue our series called The Flourishing Church where we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 29. And we're going to talk about how God, in the middle of his calling of the Israelites, in the middle of exile calls them primarily to be neighbors to the Babylonians where they're held captive in. Now, we've spent a lot of time the first three weeks, of course, talking about all that Israel went through, and the Israelites went through on their way to exile. The Babylonians were notoriously brutal people in the ancient world, and they enacted all of their brutality on the city of Jerusalem. As they destroyed that city, burned it to the ground, starved out many of its citizens, and then took the survivors, the 20,000, back to Babylon with them, bound and naked, completely embarrassed, ashamed, with their lives completely and utterly destroyed. And these people that are back in exile now, they've watched the Babylonians kill their friends and family members, burn their cities and neighborhoods to the burn their city and their neighborhoods to the ground. Burn the temple to the ground, and God comes to them and says to them, "I want you to be a neighbor to those Babylonians who are there with you." I want you to be a neighbor to the oppressors, the enemies, the murderers who have murdered your friends and family. I want you to be a neighbor. And he defines for them what it means to be a neighbor, to seek the flourishing of the city in which you live in. Now, here's the thing that's probably more than just shocking about what the Israelites realize, is that the most scandalous thing really that God asks them to do in their time of exile is to be a neighbor to these Babylonians. Is to be a neighbor to their oppressors, to their captors. These people who have treated them so, so horrifically. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 29 that we find this calling, though, where God says, I want you to be neighbors to these Babylonians. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, I'm going to read that for us this morning. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare or the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its flourishing you will find your flourishing. Now notice in verses 5 and 6, I know Brent talked about verse 5 particularly last week. Verses 5 and 6 kind of go together in this, so we're going to talk about both in some ways. But in verses 5 and 6, God is essentially telling his people to be neighbors. He says, settle in, build houses, raise families, and multiply in this new neighborhood that you are living in. In other words, move into the neighborhood and be neighbors to the Babylonians, your captives. And again, given all that the Israelites have been through, this command of God might have at least seemed strange. In some ways, maybe it even seemed cruel to the Israelites. God, have you seen what they've done, and you're telling us to do this now? It's almost like God doesn't care what we've been through. It almost seems like a cruel command. Until we realize a little bit more about the biblical story, and that one of the things that's central about the biblical story is that God has consistently, throughout Scripture, called his people to be neighbors in whatever place they are, whatever place they find themselves in. And so what God is doing with the Israelites, with the exiles, is he's tapping back into that story that has been existing from the very beginning and presenting them the calling to be neighbors even in the place that they're in, in an impossible situation. And so today, as we talk about why God might call his people in exile to such a surprising calling, we're gonna consider three stories From the Bible about being a neighbor. The first story starts in a place that was known as Babel at the time. It's modern day, it's basically what is modern day Iraq today. After the flood of Noah's time had destroyed most of the population on the earth, humanity began to build back, to rebuild and repopulate in an area, in a city that was known as Babel. And as they begin to rebuild their city, they begin to get really proud of the city that they were building, and they thought to themselves, look at this fantastic city we've built. We're so good at building a city, in fact, I bet we could build a tower up into heaven and be gods ourselves. And so they begin to build this tower, God sees what's going on, and as a result of their pride and their hubris, God judges them and he humbles them. And we're told that out of Babel, the judgment that God gives, the consequence that comes out of the pride and hubris of that is that God humbles the people so that at one point they were speaking all one language, living in all one, all one city together, and God scatters them all over the earth and confuses their language as, his, as part of their consequence for pride. And God humbles them in that way. And after God confuses the languages of all the people in Babel so that they aren't speaking the same language, and he scatters them all over the earth in different reasons, or different regions, this is the Bible's reason for telling us this this is why different nations exist, this is why different languages exist, this is kind of the source story for all of those things. But at the same time, one thing that we also see is that this was a big deal because the curse and the consequence that comes out of Babel has affected human history in so many different ways. For one thing, it's just kind of given us, along with our sin nature as human beings, kind of what we would call a fear of the other. In other words, it's somebody who looks differently than us, somebody who speaks a different language, they're from a different country, a different region, they may have a different uh, belief system, they may have a different re- uh, religion. For all of us within human nature, it is, there is at least a fear or a suspicion of somebody who looks differently, talks differently, acts differently than us. It's, it's innate in all of us as human beings. It's part of our sin nature, but it's also a part of the curse of Babel. Now, we all experience that, of course, to different degrees. And throughout history, some of the extreme examples have been things like racism, segregation, Uh, have been things like uh, wars and oppression and genocides and holocausts and all those kinds of things. But as we're talking about being a neighbor today, this was the anti-neighbor consequence of what was going on. It came out of Babel. Now, as God always does, though, he never gives up on his story. He never gives up on his calling for his people. And so in the midst of that story, in the midst of all the mess that comes out of Babel, God chooses one man out of the land of Ur, which is in the region of Babel, a man by the name of Abram man who will ultimately become, of course, Abraham. And it's in this new world for the first time where God sets apart a man and his descendants to be neighbors intentionally in the world. In other words, what Abraham and his descendants will have to do is they will now have to cross boundaries, they will now have to cross barriers to be intentionally neighbors to people who talk differently than them, speak a different language, have a different culture, and maybe even have different religions than them. And when God sets this up, he calls Abraham, first of all, to be his in relationship with him, but also to be his representative in the world. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see this calling to Abram. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing." And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Brent spoke a little bit about this last week, about blessing, about being blessed to be a blessing and Abraham's calling, but this is actually where it starts. We're going to expand upon that idea a little bit more. And that what God is calling Abraham to be is a neighbor in this way. And When he says to Abraham and he promises him blessing, he says, I'm going to bless you, but then that blessing as a neighbor is supposed to go out into the world. And we've been talking about the flourishing church and how it is that we're called to pray and seek the flourishing of the city and the the nations around us really is what it is. And in all of this, what we need to see is that the the blessing that God talks about here and flourishing that comes out of it as a result are very closely related. In other words, they go hand in hand. The blessings of God enable us as his creation to flourish. Listen to how uh, theologian Richard Bauckham ties blessing and flourishing together. I think this is a great way to talk about it. He says, Blessing is the way that God enables his creation to be fertile and fruitful, to grow and to flourish. In its most comprehensive sense, it is God's purpose for his creation. Whether human life enjoys the good, Wherever human life enjoys the good things of creation and produces the good fruits of human activity, God is pouring out His blessing. Wherever people bless God for His blessings, to that extent is known as He is known as the good Creator who provides for human flourishing. So I want you to look at the relationship there that He points out: the relationship between blessing and flourishing. That it's God's unique activity to bring blessing that then leads and enables the flourishing of His creation. And in this blessing and flourishing, God promises really three significant blessings to Abraham. So when he goes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you, there are three things that he says he's going to bless him with. He says he's going to bless him with a home or a land. He says he's going to bless him with with a great nation or a community to live from. And he promises him relationship as well. When God says, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. That's a statement of covenant relationship that he's making with Abraham. So basically, I've got your back. We're in this together. You and I are together in relationship. And of course, that relationship would be transferred to his descendants as well, the, uh, the nation of Israel. And so with all that God gives Abraham, notice that at the end, there is a calling then to be a neighbor. Here's how I'm going to bless you, is what God says, right? These three things. And then now this is how you are to be a blessing. You are to help the flourishing of all the families on the earth. That from this nation that I'm creating, from the descendants that I'm bringing together, from the blessings that I'm giving to you, the whole flourishing of the entire earth is designed to take place. Now, This forms the basis of what it means for God's people to be a neighbor, to be blessed so that we are a blessing. To be a neighbor, then, doesn't mean that we just share the same zip code with other people. Being a neighbor is what you do more than it is kind of where you live and who you're geographically situated with. And what this does is expand our typical understanding of what being a neighbor is for us, right? It's more than just being considerate, of the people you live next to, so like, I'm gonna have a party, just wanna let you know it's gonna get loud after, you know, until uh, 10 o'clock, so just so you know I'm being a considerate neighbor. Or it's more than just kind of waving at the guy across the street as you bring your trash cans to the street during the week. This is about what it means to actually seek out the flourishing and blessing of people in our world. It also expands our understanding of who our neighbors are, that they aren't just the people who live on our street. They aren't just the people who live in our city or share our zip code. They are all the families of the earth. Make a note of that, of course, because we're going to come back to it later. But God takes Abraham into the land. And of course, as you know the story, generations and generations go by until the descendants of Abraham begin to form this great community that God promised they would be. And there's a great community of, of, of Hebrews, so great in number, that Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, begins to look at the Hebrews as a threat to his own power, as a threat to Egyptian power. And so as he's leading the Egyptian kingdom at that time, Pharaoh decides now is the time to strike. Before the Hebrews get too strong, we need to make sure that we prevent them from getting strong enough to oppose us and being a rival to our power. And so Pharaoh decides to enslave the Hebrew people under Egyptian rule. And after the Israelites begin to suffer as slaves in Egypt, God sees what's going on. And again, in this case, he acts with hope. Now, he acts on behalf of the descendants of Abraham, but more importantly, what God acts on is his promise to Abraham to make his descendants into a great nation. And at Exodus 19, we see after God, of course, delivers the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to a place where he addresses them for for the first time and establishes them as that great nation. Exodus chapter 19, verses five and six, God says this to the Israelites as they've come out of Egypt. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you were to speak to the people of Israel. Now, we talked a little bit about this calling a couple of weeks ago when we talked about what it means to be priests in exile. But this is where this all comes from, right? God recommissioning the Hebrews according to his original call uh, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. When he says you're blessed to be a blessing, he's telling the exact same thing to the Israelites again. He was a little bit more general in general terms with Abraham. He gets more specific with the Israelites in the Exodus. And he says these blessings are going to look like this. You're to obey my voice and to keep my covenant. This will be the Mosaic law that God gives to to Moses, and he's going to give them uh, the Israelites very soon. Then he gives them three titles, all of which are statements of covenant relationship that God has with Israel. He calls them a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And then third, they're made into a nation as, people, uh, as the people of Israel and given a home to where to live this all out. In other words, a place, a land to live as a nation, as this great nation from Abraham. Now, when the Israelites finally do settle in the land, their whole existence is centered on these three major blessings. And they're, they're blessings really that they're called to bless the world with as well. The first one is the blessing of the law. You know, the law that's given from God to Israel through Moses was not just a list of rules. It was God's holy law. Of course, the word holy in Scripture means to be set apart, to be different. It's a reference to God's otherness, that God is other than his creation, that God is other than other gods. He is the one true God. God's holy character means that his character is unique. He is not like any piece of his creation, and he is not like any other god. He exists outside and other than his creation, that's what the holiness of God is all about. And so when God gives his holy law to Israel, he's doing nothing less than presenting to them his character. He's two things are happening here. He's telling Israel, this is who I am, and this is what I desire, this is my character. And then he's telling them also, this is who you are, who I have created you to be as your creator. In other words, as you, to the degree that you follow the law, you will flourish because this is how you were made as a human being to live. And so if we look at even the most basic example of the Mosaic Law in the Ten Commandments, we see, that th- we see all these sins that are addressed here. And I think most of us would agree as we go down that list that a lot of the things that God addresses just in those Ten Commandments are, are, are the things that often work against the blessing and flourishing in our world. In other words, to the degree to which we break the Ten Commandments, blessing and flourishing is broken in our creation as well. Things like idolatry, neglecting the worship of God, Broken families, disrespect, murder, sexual immorality, greed, stealing, lying, jealousy, coveting, injustice, abuse, materialism, all these things and more are addressed in just the Ten Commandments. And they're certainly addressed in the other 600 laws of the Mosaic law that surround the Ten Commandments or come from the Ten Commandments as well. Simply put, what God is telling Israel is that you are blessed to the degree that you follow my law. The law is a blessing to you. And to the degree that you ignore my law, curse will come. Breaking of creation will come. Brokenness will enter because this is not how you've been created to live. So the law is a blessing. The second blessing that God gives them is the land. Now the land was, of course, very important to Israel becoming a nation at all because, of course, nations need their land. They need their place that they can stake in the ground and say this. They put a stake in the ground and say this is where we live. These are our geographical borders. And that was true in the ancient world as it, ever, as it has been throughout human history, but it was really especially true in the ancient world, and here's why. And it was a huge blessing, because in the ancient world, nations and kingdoms at the time considered the gods of that nation to be intertwined with the land that that nation lived in. In other words, as you crossed one geographical border to another, into, from one nation into another, the ancients believed that you weren't just crossing from one nation geographically to another, but you were actually crossing from one realm of gods to another realm of gods. Because those gods went up into the borders of those geographical areas. Which is why you'll see a lot of nations and kingdoms bent on conquering the world. They not only believed that it would, of course, increase their treasury and it would make them richer and more powerful, but they did it in some ways from a religious perspective. That as we expand our boundaries, our gods are able to reign more and more in the existing world. Now God knew this, and so when he gives Israel the land, he sets their boundaries and then he says to them, All the earth is mine. The reality is that all the earth is mine, but I'm establishing you as a nation in the midst of the other nations so that you would be a display piece, so that you who live in the land and you who live by my laws would would see flourishing in this land of milk and honey and that the nations around you would look at Israel and they would say, wow, look at all that Israel is doing. Their God must be amazing. Maybe I should get to know that God. Instead of my god that makes me sacrifice my kids so that i can eat this week by the way that's just a you know (laughs) that's a blanket statement of pagan religion just sacrifice your kids so you can eat this week but that happened that happened a lot it was a reality and so the idea was that as god displayed his people living by the law that other nations would be attracted to that and they would say wow israel's got it figured out look at what's going on they're flourishing they have harmony they have peace They're not sacrificing their children. They're raising their children up and they're flourishing in so many different ways. We want to know who that God is. Who is the God of Israel? That's the second blessing. The third blessing was the temple. And of all the blessings that God gave to Israel, the greatest and most precious blessing was God's presence among them. Now God says, of course, the whole earth is mine. God never ceases to be present in in, in all the earth and all of his creation but at the same time with Israel there was a special presence that God said that he would be with them in the tabernacle and then in the temple in other words it was the place where he met in communion with humanity unlike any other place on the earth when he met with Israel in the temple and so that was a blessing as well that God was with them that it was the place where God could be worshiped and joined in community with humanity And so because of all these three blessings, right, Israel had the law, the land, and the temple, they were not only chosen to be blessed in this way, but through these things were to be a blessing to others. Now, you may know the story. We, of course, are in Jeremiah 29 for a reason. Israel didn't follow through with their end of the covenant. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 5, God says this. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, right, of course, the capital city of Israel, where the temple is, it represents the entire uh, Israelite nation. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my, rule by, my rules by doing wickedness more than the other nations. And against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and you have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. God comes along and says, Look, not only have you not been a blessing to the other nations around you, but you've brought more chaos and brokenness into the world because you've neglected my law and my calling. In fact, you're worse than the other nations around you. And so as a result, I'm going to judge you for the sake, in some ways, for the sake of the nations, for the sake of his creation. Now look, as we've discussed in this series, this is, of course, why Israel ultimately ends up in exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel, being a contemporary of Jeremiah, is, contrib- is contributing kind of the same message to them. Um, and and, and it's, why they, it's because they failed to be a neighbor in the way that God called them to be to the nations around them. But as we've also discussed, God, of course, still gives us hope in every situation. And that leads to the second story of being a neighbor in Scripture. Where Israel failed to be a neighbor, story number two would not fail because in this story, God himself comes to be a neighbor to us. One of the most familiar and important passages in all of the New Testament is known as the prologue of John's gospel. You'll find it in John chapter one. And it's one of the most theologically rich and important passages in all the New Testament because John undertakes this idea of what it means for God to take on human flesh and come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We know this is the incarnation, but the thickness of all of this is kind of setting up the purpose of John's entire gospel. That's why it's been studied a lot. It's often quoted a lot. We talk about it a lot during Christmas because it presents to us, of course, the blessing and the reality of the incarnation But right in the middle of that prologue is is, is one verse, uh, verse 14, that kind of sums up this entire section. And I'm gonna read it for you. In John chapter one, it says this, verse 14, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that's the ESV translation. It's the one we typically use in here. I wanna read for you a translation, or I should say a rendering of this verse. Um, that I have a love-hate relationship with, I'm honest, if I'm honest with you. I love it more than I hate it, so I'm, I won't go into the hate piece of it. But it's from the message. It's Eugene Peterson's rendering of this very verse. And it's really grown on me, and I'm going to explain why. But the same verse says this. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Now here's why I love this rendering. Is that it takes a high idea, right, God coming to us as man, the incarnation, God fully man and fully human. How does that work? What does that look like? And he brings it to a ground level. The purpose of this is that Jesus moved into the neighborhood with us. He became the neighbor that Israel was supposed to be from the beginning. And what you see here is that the creation this makes the, the, the aspect of Jesus' humanity become tangible and real to us. It also gives us an implied calling as well. So that we don't let this doctrine of the incarnation pass us by without too much thought. The doctrine of the incarnation brings us to a place where we understand how Jesus has become the neighbor that we were always supposed to be and moved into the neighborhood with us. And look, as we, as we think about this, you think about it a little bit more, what you realize is that each one of those blessings that God promised to Israel, the law, the land, and the temple, is actually embodied in the ministry of Jesus. Think about it this way, right? Jesus was very clearly the walking embodiment of the law. He is the full representation of the character of God, which was the purpose of the law. Jesus himself said, I am the truth who came to fulfill the law. And so he's the walking embodiment of the truth and the character of God, which is the purpose of the law. Secondly, Jesus was also the embodiment of the promise of the land. He brings the promise of the land, the kingdom of earth, the reign of God to the earth in his kingdom ministry. He heals those who need healing. He delivers those who need to be delivered from demonic oppression, and he saves those who are lost. And then finally, Jesus is also the temple. Jesus even said at one point, tear down this temple and I will raise it in three days. And of course, the gospel writers tell us that as he's standing in the temple courts, he says he was talking about his own body the very embodiment and presence of God. John says that he dwelt with us, he tabernacled among us, he templed among us. That was part of his incarnation. And so what you see here is that Jesus was the full blessing of God in person, the same blessing that God spoke to Abraham about all the way back in Genesis 12. Jesus is in his earthly ministry. If you look at the Gospels, one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself was son of man which I always, find, I always found kind of interesting because there are, because it doesn't seem as grandiose as maybe some of the other titles that Jesus could have used. King of Kings, Messiah, even Son of God. Instead, he uses Son of Man, which is kind of strange until you think about it. The reason why Jesus is using this title for himself, Son of Man, over and over again is that he is intentionally highlighting the purpose of his humanity in saving us and purpose of his humanity in bringing blessing to the world. Because as much as Jesus was, of course, sa- or of course, saved us by his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus also saved us by his humanity. He also saved us by being the righteous human that we were all supposed to be from the very beginning. And as you trace Jesus's ministry through, you begin to see how this, how, how this comes uh, to bear. What's so amazing about God's purpose in Jesus coming to us as a human being is that Jesus steps into each one of those human callings throughout the biblical story and he fulfills them. Let me give you a list of those. I can't go through all of them. I wish I could go through all of them. Maybe uh, this is something, I give you some scripture references on this next slide here if we can put that next slide up. Um, And you can kind of study it on your own. But here's just an example of who Jesus was and how he fulfilled these callings To men throughout the biblical story. Jesus is the greater Adam. He's the second and greater Adam. Jesus is the greater Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the greater David. He is the Davidic king through which the people during the triumphal entry cried out, son of David, Hosanna, save us. The eternal king. Jesus is the greater priest, the great high priest that Hebrews tells us about. Jesus was the greater Israelite, the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets and the calling of Israel. And then finally, Jesus is the greater witness. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, Jesus does all of this in his earthly ministry by taking on flesh. And then after his death, his resurrection, and right before his ascension, in Acts chapter one, he looks at his disciples and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He commissions them to do the very same thing that they have witnessed him doing. And for every one of us who are Christians, we have witnessed and experienced the salvation of Jesus, and we have witnessed what he has done to accomplish God's purposes on our behalf. And so as he says this to his disciples, this opens up the third story of being a neighbor, the story that is still being written, the story of the church being the neighbor following in the as, as witnesses of the one who was the ultimate neighbor. When you think about what it means to be a neighbor as a Christian, what's the first command that comes to mind or the first verse that comes to mind? Hopefully it is the greatest commandment, right, in Matthew chapter 22, where it says, 30, 37 through 40, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God, this is Jesus speaking, of course, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Now what's interesting about Jesus' answer here is if you know the context, he's asked by a religious leader, teacher, tell us what the greatest commandment is. And of course, it's no surprise to hear Jesus say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. All All the Israelites knew that, they recited that from the time that they could speak. It's called the Shema. But, What Jesus adds to it is remarkable and would have been surprising. The second one is like it. And he uses this language to join these two together. In other words, these two go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Now look, Jesus could have just stopped and said, greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. But he used the opportunity to teach the second commandment is like the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus says loving God is like loving your neighbor, you can see why it's joined here when you consider Jesus' ministry as the ultimate neighbor. You're to be a neighbor just like you saw me be a neighbor. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will walk in my way. If you love me, you will embrace my mission, and my mission is to fulfill the call to be a neighbor on God's behalf in the world. Now, um, What's interesting about all of this um, is that Luke, and you may know that Luke and Acts were written by the same guy, uh, by Luke, right? Surprisingly enough. But when Luke, orig- and in our Bibles, of course, the, the, the books are two different books. We have the Gospel of Luke and we have the book of Acts. But originally, when Luke wrote these books together, or he wrote these books, he wrote them together as one volume, as one book together. And yet when you read each one of those accounts, what you realize is that they are, there's a lot of similarities, but they are quite different as well. And one of the biggest stark differences is that Jesus isn't in the book of Acts necessarily, right? I mean, he's not on the earth anymore. In fact, at the beginning of of, of Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends right after he tells his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. And so the book of Acts, all 28 chapters going forward, is just about the church going forward. Now here's the idea. This is why many people think that, many scholars believe that Luke wrote these two things together and kept them together is that these are parts one and two of Jesus's ministry. Part one is, of course, Jesus's earthly ministry, but part two is his ongoing ministry through the church. So that when we talk about what it means to be the body of Christ, the body of Christ is more than just a turn of phrase, it's more than just an image, it's more than just kind of a symbol that Paul invents in 1 Corinthians 12 to talk about how the church is supposed to function together. It's actually us understanding that we are the very physical body of Christ in the earth, that Jesus continues His ministry and His mission through His church, bodily, if you will, physically through His church. Now, our staff is reading through a book on discipleship right now, and just this past week we were reading kind of about this issue in particular: what it looks like to literally embody the witness of Jesus, to embody the gospel of Christ. And it's a book by uh, by Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch called "Read Jesus." But they, in this book, they actually refer to the church at one point as a conspiracy of little Jesuses. And not conspiracy like conspiracy theory. Conspiracy like a group of people getting together to accomplish something together, right? To, uh, to, accomplish a, uh, uh, to conspire together to accomplish a plan of action. But he calls the church, they call the church a conspiracy of little Jesuses, and they explain it this way. It is embodiment or our willingness to embody and live out Jesus's life and message that creates spiritual authority. And they're talking about our witness out into the world. What is it that makes the witness of, uh, of Jesus, the gospel itself, something that the, the world will take seriously? They're saying it's the embodiment of Jesus's life and message. And embodiment and transmission therefore go together and are all bound inextricably to our relationship with Jesus. The difficulty that we face in the issue of embodiment and transmission is that it's directly related to the plausibility of the gospel. Our witness is a vital link in giving the claims of Jesus credibility in the eyes of non-Christian people. In other words, the message of the good news of the gospel goes hand in hand with what it means to be a neighbor. And it was always meant to be that way from the beginning. This is not just something where God's like, ah, I don't know really how to get to the world, so I'm just going to pivot and change the story. This is a fulfillment that has been goes all the way back to the calling of Abraham. And it's Jesus who enables us to do it. This message today is called The Church Who Represents God to the World. When we think about what it means to represent God, I want us to pick apart that word represent for a minute into two different words or a, a prefix and then a word. Think about it this way, represent. We're to represent who Jesus is to a watching world by the way that we live and by the way that we speak. Jesus presents his ministry, his person, his character during his earthly ministry, and then he sends his church out to represent that same ministry out into the world until he comes back. That's the mission of the church. So I'll ask you then, what does that what do those implications have for us? What does that look like? What does it mean for us to represent Jesus in our world today? What would it look like for Jesus to move into your neighborhood? Let's say Jesus moved two houses down on your street. How would things change in your neighborhood if that happened? Who are the people that Jesus would spend his time with? What would Jesus be concerned about? What would, it be that Je- who would Who would Jesus reach out to? What would he be about? What would he be spending his days doing? If you had a front row seat to see that, what would it Look like? What would Jesus do about the social and political issues in our day? How would he respond? Well, I think all of those are important questions to ask. And I'm not sure that I have the answers to all of them. But I can say this I'm confident in the fact that Jesus would not act outside of his character in every given and in any given situation. And by that I mean, of course, what we see in the fruit of the Spirit. It's listed for us in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now you may know that this is more than just a list of like the good moral things that a Christian should do or the good moral things that a Christian should be like. This is nothing, other than, this is nothing less than the character of Jesus being imprinted on the lives of his new creation followers who have been enlivened by the Spirit. If we are new creation by the Spirit, we, have been made into, we are being made into Christ-likeness and the character of Jesus is displayed right there which Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. That's why he says against these things there are no law because remember the law was originally supposed to show the character of God to his people. Now we know, right, as Jeremiah 31 says, that God's written the law on the hearts of his people by his Spirit. And so that as a result, the fruit of that is that the Spirit produces in us the character of Jesus, which was what the law was supposed to do the entire time. That's why Paul says against these things there is no law. And if you look at that list, it's a list of blessing and flourishing. I mean, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Could we use a little bit more of that in the world that we live in? And what would humanity, what would this planet look like if those things were flourishing everywhere? We'd live in a much different place. This world would be radically transformed. So what implications, again, does that have for us? And what's the connection between that and being a neighbor? Well, not only does the world need this right now, but the world also needs us to repent and turn away from what is called the works of the flesh. The two verses before the ones that we just read, Paul lists out the works of the flesh which are evident. And he says this, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, now look, as we said earlier about the Ten Commandments, so many of them are a representation of what happens when things are, of what uh, uh, of, of what it looks like for creation to be broken. When you look at that list that we just talked about there, right, this list is an kind of almost an all-encompassing um, list of the anti-kingdom stuff, the anti-kingdom of God, the thing that breaks God's creation. All of those things. Now, what's nice about lists like this when we get them in Scripture is that we can line them up and just kind of work through them practically. And to be uber practical about it this morning as we close, I want us to kind of, I brought a slide where each one of these are kind of listed side by side. We can take a look at that. Have that up there. And instead of saying fruit of the Spirit and you know works of the flesh, good neighbor, bad neighbor. This is what a good neighbor looks like. This is what a bad neighbor looks like. Good neighbor's loving, joyful, peaceable, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. A bad neighbor is sexually immoral, immoral, impure, idolatrous, hostile, bitter, jealous, angry, divisive, and envious. And as you line those two things up together, you begin to ask yourself, okay, which way in my life do I respond in my relationship? Because these things are highly relational, by the way. They're not just personal, they're not just given to us for personal piety. They actually help us see that this is a blessing that is given to us so that we can be a blessing to the world. This is this is like Abraham being kind of played out in our lives, right? The call of Abraham being played out in our lives. These are relational terms that impact the world around us and impact our relationships. And if you were to ask yourself, what characterizes more how I react to the world around me, how I react to my relationships around me? Where do you see good neighbor? Where do you see bad neighbor? Because God has given us, if you're a believer, God has given you an amazing responsibility and an amazing power in this world. It's literally to bring brokenness and chaos and curse into the world or to bring blessing and flourishing into the world. And at any given moment, with the big things and the small things in our lives, we make a decision whether to do one or the other. You know, you may have heard of what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi right now with the water crisis it's a really sad situation. In some ways, it's really kind of, you know, not only sad, but, but scary that people would have to go through what they're dealing with right now. Um, but I think even more and disheartening for me personally is to, see, is to see how some people are responding to it. I think, and it happens a lot, whether it's in Jackson, Mississippi, whether it's in San Francisco, whether it's in Portland, but it becomes quickly politicized, right, as a culture that we live in. And so you've got people who are saying, well, this is a result of conservative policy and there's a conservative governor and so as a result, all these things are happening and they're using it as an opportunity to almost be giddy about what's happening so that they can prove a political point. Now the same thing happens with the conservatives and they look at things that happen in San Francisco or Portland and they say, see, this is the result of progressive policy. They're getting what they deserve. Now in the midst of this, There are several, well there are dozens of churches in Jackson, Mississippi who have decided to do something about the problem with water in their communities. And they've bought cases and cases of bottled water and they've invited their neighbors to come and to take cases of bottled water so that they can have fresh water to drink, fresh water to cook with, and all those kinds of things. Now I present this to you, here's why I bring this up. This is a microcosm of a choice that we have every day in big ways and small ways. We can sit around and point the finger and Celebrate ideological victories, so to speak. We can try to dunk on our opponents and people we consider to have different perspectives than us. Or we can be the church that says, I'm going to bring flourishing in this situation. I'm not going to cast blame. I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to use human suffering as a way to dunk on my ideological opponents. I'm going to do something about human flourishing and blessing as a neighbor. And look, it's become popular in today's climate, especially socially and politically, to believe that we need to do whatever it takes to fight against an opponent and an enemy. Right, this is the the ends justifies the means kind of perspective to things, and it's much more Machiavellian than it is Christian. I'll tell you that much. But it's basically saying that if I have to be mean and divisive and angry and nasty, I'm fighting for what matters so in the end, I can be that way because I'm fighting for what matters and that's going to get me in the end to a better place and get us to a better place in the end. But I'd ask this question. Is there ever an allowance in Scripture where God says, do not act according to the fruit of the Spirit? Is there ever an excuse for us to say, ah, fruit of the Spirit, uh, it's only situational? Is there ever an excuse for us to say the works of the flesh are necessary where they are necessary? I don't see that in Scripture. Maybe I've missed something. If you can find it, please point it out. But what I see here is God saying, I've called you to be a neighbor. I've called you to live according to the fruit of the Spirit. You trust me with that. Can you trust me enough as the sovereign Lord of hosts who is in control of everything, to live out the fruit of the Spirit when I tell you this is who you're supposed to be. And I can tell you this, um, as you see that contrast between reactions in any given situation, Jackson's just the most recent, but we face these all the time. In any given situation, our temptation is always, uh, in some ways, to react out of the flesh. But God calls us to trust Him by reacting in the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, we put up resistance, Yes, we stand for truth, but those are all a part of the fruit of the Spirit. And we stand in resistance by and through the fruit of the Spirit, not by and through the works of the flesh. And we need to be careful in this because Jesus once told us, what does it profit a man to gain the entire world? Win the culture war, but lose your soul in the process. I think those are words that we need to hear loud and clear today as the American church and what we're dealing with and what we're facing. One way to react is a fruit of the Spirit that glorifies God, that makes us a good neighbor. The other is a way in which reacting out of the works of the flesh, which are the works of death, bring chaos and brokenness and spiraling confusion into our world. We're going to finish with communion today as a response, and I think that's a fitting response to what we're talking about today, especially what it means to embody the life of Christ and be the neighbor that he made us to be, he's created us to be, be the neighbor that he saved us to be. One of the powerful things that we do as we observe communion is that we take on the elements, the bread that represents Jesus' body, the cup that represents his blood, and we literally take them into us as a representation of The salvation that has been given on our behalf, but also as a representation of what that salvation brings new life to us. It is the sustenance by which, represents the sustenance by which we live. When Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, this is a representation of Christ's life in me. When Paul says in Galatians, Uh, Chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what communion is. It's a representation of the fact that the life of Christ is being lived through my physical body, Mm -hmm. even. Through my engagement in the world. And so as we respond this morning, I'm going to ask the band to come up. I want to pray for us. Our communion stations are located throughout the room. We have four different communion stations. And so just go to the one that's closest to you so that we make sure that we spread it all out. And we've got enough for everybody. Gluten-free options are, of course, at the table in the back. We pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning amazed at the calling that you've placed on our lives. Lord, I, I don't know what every person's dealing with this morning. I don't know what every person is going through. But I pray that their eyes and their heart might be open to the purpose that you have for them. You've not created a, any of us without a purpose and a calling. You put your stamp and your image on us so that we would be people who glorify you and represent you to the world. And so, Lord, I ask that where we need to be, um, encouraged in that, you would encourage us, where we need to be softened in our hearts, to embrace what it means to be a good neighbor and what it means to be a neighbor in the way of Jesus, I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts. And Lord, as we go to the communion table this morning, would we remember that it is a table, and we look eye to eye, and a table sits us down, eye to eye to every person around that table with us, realizing that we are all here for one reason and one reason alone. It's not our social standing, it's not how much money we have in our bank account, it's not how tall we are, it's not how strong we are, it's not how witty we are, it's not how much education we have, it's not the neighborhood that we live in. We are all at the most important table in the universe because of the grace of God alone. And because, Lord Jesus, you have brought us to this place. And as we think about that, Lord, help us to remember our neighbors outside of this place. that we see eye to eye with them as well as we were once sinners saved by the grace of God and made new. Use us, Lord. Use us as your witnesses. Use us as the people you have called by your name and made new for your purposes. And in the end, Lord, would you be glorified Work out your purposes. We pray for this world. We pray for this culture. We pray for our country. We pray for the division and the heartache and the suffering. It's not new. It's gone on throughout history, but Lord, we experience it in a real way right now. Lord, help us to be a part of the solution of flourishing. And guide us by your wisdom and grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen so if you'll make your way to the communion stations the band's going to play us out you can take communion at any time that you'd like during these next couple songs maybe there's some time that you want to spend in prayer and reflection and meditation it's fine just sit in your seat and allow the music to be a backdrop and when you're ready you can stand and continue to sing with the band as we close out maybe you want to partner with other people family members and, and, and take communion together however you feel led during this time
0: In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor.
1: Thank you all for joining us today. It's been great to worship with you, celebrate our Savior, celebrate our King and how He calls us forward. I pray that you would hear His call clearly this week as you move throughout your days and that you would hear His call on your life, the love that He has for you, the grace and mercy that He showers in your life. As we leave this morning, we have our prayer partners, the Hoshawaras, and a, De- a Debra Berry. We got a two-for-one today or a three-for-one. So. Lots of prayer. We've got a lot of people available to pray for you today, and so if you need prayer, they're ready to pray with you. We also have uh, prayer cards that are located on the table as you leave here this morning. If you'll write your prayer request on that card, we consider it a privilege and a blessing and part of what it means for us to flourish together to pray for one another. And so if you would fill out one of those cards, drop it in the offering stand as you leave here this morning. Uh, we'll make sure that gets to the right people that will be praying for your requests and the things that you're dealing with in your life. Um, and so... We pray as you leave this place, enjoy your holiday weekend. If you got a couple of days off, enjoy some time with family. Enjoy the um, unseasonably warm temperatures we have right now. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that. Uh, but have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.